Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Brainwaves. Hear the world differently. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio Wednesdays at 5pm for Brainwaves, Melbourne's drive-time radio show. Giving voice to people with mental illness. One in five have a mental illness, but five in five can enjoy this great program featuring heartwarming stories, great information and some laughs as well. Find us at 3CR. 8.55 on your AM dial. Sponsored by Mental Illness Fellowship of Victoria. Welcome listeners, you're with Brainwaves on 3CR, 855 AM on your dial. Um, Panelling today is Kate and Kathleen is interviewing and our special guest today is Phil Pike, um, veteran peacekeeper. Welcome Phil. Hello Kate, hi Kathleen. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about the historical and social context of peacekeeping in Australia? Yes, look, the, uh, the history of Australia's enduring mission, as we call it, began in 1947 when uh, four Australian peacekeepers were sent to, uh, to Dutch Indonesia uh, to oversee the, the local elections there as the country moved uh, from Dutch control over to independence. And uh, in 68 years since that time, the, the Australian Defence Force and indeed Australian police officers and Australian civilians have participated on uh, approximately 70 operations. Many of those are are unknown. Many of those are forgotten. Um, One of the largest ones was the Korean War. That was actually a United Nations operation from uh, 50 to 53. Um, And uh, and there's been a number of them since where, uh, where in reality, the word peacekeeping is quite an inappropriate title because uh, it's turned out to be more than peacekeeping. It's actually turned out to be full-scale war. uh, I understand that a lot of peacekeepers that have returned from Australia were classified as coming from peace-like environments, when in reality they were war zone environments. Could you tell me, Phil, what are the consequences for these veterans? uh, I I guess when, uh, when people... Go, go to war. You know, governments are, uh, are great at running wars on budgets, and you know, naturally, as governments always run on budgets. However, they also apply a, uh, a categorisation to service, and so you could have warlike operations, which are very, you know, in recent times, when the initial phase of East Timor uh, were the um, uh, were Iraq, of course, and Afghanistan. But the the other part of it is. But, you know, Rwanda, and we talk about Rwanda with the 20th anniversary of the Cabello Massacre, where the Australian contingent had to stand by uh, under, under restrictive rules of engagement and watch up to 8,000 people slaughtered in front of them over 24 hours. That was initially classified as non-warlike operations. And it was really only through the efforts of the Australian Peacekeepers and Peacemakers Veterans Association that that was finally reclassified in 2007. But that had a dreadful toll on the peacekeepers who witnessed that horror. And, uh, and, there, you know, and there are many other examples over the, the past 68 years where it's actually been 
uh, a, a warlike situation. And of course, there are other other peacekeeping operations that uh, that haven't been warlike, have been uh, you know have been quite successful. And the Solomon Islands is a uh, an example of that, where we left there in 2013 after 10 years, and the country is actually progressing. But Phil, what are the what is the toll on? The, could you speak to the toll on the veterans when, for example, they come back from Rwanda and they've witnessed horrific situations, horrific atrocities, and they're classified as having been in a peace-like zone? What what happens for those returned veterans? We, we've actually created a second-class veteran, Kate. We've actually created people that feel they're not worthy of recognition, not worthy to march on Anzac Day. We've created, just simply by our classification system, people that don't receive the same entitlements as those who, who have served in, on a warlike operation. And, of course, the, the pressures on their own mental health are just, uh, you know, it, just astronomical. And, you know, over the past uh, uh, decade, there's been a study into peacekeepers' mental health and that that study returned findings that the the um, the mental health of peacekeepers were was of of a similar standard to that of Vietnam veterans. Yet there's been very little action to actually give recognition to Australia's peacekeeping history, and indeed Australia's peacekeepers who have been uh, um, you know, are still categorised as were on non-warlike operations. Why do you think that is? Phil, because um, what springs to mind is, you know, the TV grab headlines which show um, extreme situations of conflict and um, we don't very often hear about our peacekeepers. Do you think it's, is it media, is it government, um, is it a lack of public education? Um, why do you think? Why do you think we've got this hidden contingent of veterans in you know the twenty first century? I believe it's uh, it, it's the the, the constant uh, uh, bureaucratic focus. I mean, when we talk about peacekeeping, we've really got to think of peace enforcement, peace monitoring. Um, we're looking at humanitarian operations. You know, the, the spectrum is very, very broad that we put under this terminology of peacekeeping. And, of course, it, it, to be fair, it is very, very complex. So if you look at Operation Paladin, where Australian peacekeepers have been involved since 1956 on the border between Lebanon and Israel, it, it, it generally, in that period of time, it's been very, very peaceful. People are more likely to get a suntan than actually be shot at. However, there have been significant spikes over that history where it has absolutely turned into chaotic warfare. And, uh, and so to get th this transition, for, um, this, you know, this re-recognition, uh, it, it, it takes a lot of work to push forward to government to have these reviews and indeed actually have fair and equitable outcomes because the outcomes, once again, are linked in to budgetary arrangements. So it's a very, very difficult situation for, to be fair for government, but uh, but you know where it it really relates to a personal um, experience for the peacekeepers on the ground. We believe it's paramount that uh, that reclassifications do occur. Okay, excellent, Phil. Well, um, could you uh, tell me the consequences for lack of recognition for veterans in Australia, the mental health aspects. 
the, the lack of recognition that the absolutely exacerbates the mental health condition of peacekeepers. Now, if we, we're going to look at it in the modern context, and let's look at peacekeeping in the uh, uh, from 1990 onwards, where most peacekeepers, including myself, have also served overseas in warlike operations. So for our entitlements, we, 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 we're fine. We, we get, uh, you know, we'll end up uh, with, with appropriate entitlements, service pensions, um, you know, our medical uh, bills will be looked after in years to come. But for those that are peacekeepers and peace monitors and those on humanitarian operations, um, they, they don't get any of that. And so, you know, the issues around their, their post-traumatic stress disorder is exacerbated despite whatever treatment is available by the fact that they're just not recognised. And I, I guess an example very recently was United Nations Peacekeepers Day was the 29th of May. Not one person in the Australian government including the Minister for Veterans Affairs or the Minister for Defence, recognised that. In fact, even our, uh, our mental health system, the Veterans and Veterans Families Counselling Service, didn't recognise it. Instead, for them, they just labelled it PTSD Awareness Day, which is very important. But it's even more important to give the recognition to the Australian Defence Force personnel, the Australian police officers and the Australian civilians who have served on United Nations sanctioned operations. Definitely, Phil. I think something definitely needs to be done in regards to recognition. I'm just going to pass it over to Kate now to take us out for a break. Sure. Thank you, Phil. Um, We're going to go to some music now and we'll be back after this break. I'm struggling with my mental health. You're with... um Brainwaves on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am on your dial. Um, Our guest today is Phil Pike, peacekeeping veteran. Welcome back, Phil. Thank you, Kate. Um, Phil, we would would, um, really love to hear about the mental health implications of peacekeeping um, for Australian veterans. I understand there's been a government report into mental health. Uh, yes, there has, and uh, it was uh, the, the the Dunt review, which was released uh, um, some years ago, looked at the, the reports um, that focused purely on the, the mental health of veterans. Um, but the, the, the sad thing about that report was, um, just before the, the the report was completed, they found that they'd actually missed uh, all uh, defence force reservists out of it completely, despite the fact that ten percent of the deployed forces overseas were made up of reservists. Could you just um, so explain was, what a reservist is to us, Phil, for the listening audience? Yes, a reservist is a, uh, a person who has a part-time commitment to the Australian Defence Force. They have a, uh, a civilian job, um, but they usually parade in a regional unit. They are the face of, of defence in the regional areas, and uh, and so they, they get taken away to... You know, they volunteer to be taken uh, on deployments overseas and put into uh, um, you know, larger units, and, and usually they're formed on peacekeeping operations. So from 2007 to 2013, uh, the Solomon Islands operation was, was 90% reservists. Um, Timor in the last two years was also 90% reservists, and very sadly we lost one over there in a vehicle crash with young Private Prideau. So, so the reservists have been stepping up, and... Um, and 
you know, even people like myself, I'm a reservist. I've always been a reservist. I've got the, had the opportunity to serve in Iraq and the Middle East and in Afghanistan as well. But when we come home, we actually separate and come back to our normal lives, our civilian jobs, and back to our families. Sure, so that, to have this omission under the Dunk Review into mental health and defence was, was just absolutely incomprehensible. Would you like to see another um, commissioned um, research study, including reservists, Phil? Um, it sounds pretty important. It sounds like a large percentage of the, the sample that you'd want to look at has been left out. We worked very hard, Kate, uh, in a very short space of time. We did get reservists uh, reviewed, uh, the reservist position reviewed and included in the Dunt report. Um, but the very fact it was missed in the terms of reference by defence really said, said a lot about uh, how where their focus was and it, uh, they just completely forgotten a full cohort. I, I found it myself quite disturbing, quite disturbing. Sure. So what were the findings of that report, Phil? And, and do, the, uh, you be, do you believe they also extend to reservists, the missing section of the sample? Yes, look, I can tell you, Kate, from a very personal perspective that uh, when I came home from the Middle East and Iraq in 2003, uh, a week after I finished, and I was standing on a street corner in my hometown wondering what the hell I'd just been through. I'd been through the war phase in Iraq and, uh, and I felt just like the National Serviceman did 40 years ago coming out of Vietnam and uh, basically your contract's up. Thank you very much for your service. We'll see you later. Um, there wasn't the support then. There wasn't the services then. Uh, and I'm very pleased to say that uh, we jumped forward 10 years and there has been a significant improvement in, uh, in, being, in veterans being able to access the health, uh, the mental health services. But then again, you know, if, if it's not done immediately, then it becomes too late. And we spoke about the lack of recognition. That will always continue to be an exacerbating factor until veterans are, are, are t um, treated in a fair and equitable manner no matter whether, where they've served and what operation. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it will always continue to be an issue for government to have to contend with until that, uh, that uh, becomes reasonable and fair again. Sure, and I think a, a reflection of that is the um, the history of um, agitation for the role of honour. Could you tell us about that, Phil? Okay, the Australian Peacekeepers and Peacemakers Veterans Association had for over a decade fought to have the names who had died of those who had died on non-warlike service placed on the roll of honour amongst the other 103,000 Australians who had died in conflict uh, placed up there on the Australian War Memorial. In our nation's capital, there were uh, uh, 48 peacekeepers who had been completely left off there and a former director of the Australian War Memorial openly said, no one cares, it doesn't matter, and it would never change. And, uh, and so from that day on, having met the mother of uh, uh, Private Jamie Clark, who died in uh, the Solomon Islands in uh, 2005, um, I knew the pilot of the Sea King, who died at Nias when the Sea King crashed, with killing nine Australians in, in uh, Indonesia in uh, 2005 also. Uh, it, it actually mattered. It had to. It, it needed to change. 
the very fact that it was a bureaucratic view of the world meant it should change. And because there were these families who were grieving, who uh, who had no place to come in and touch a name, or their loved ones had that respect of uh, of the nation. Their names were put in a book, in a locked cabinet, and for the families to even see those names, they had to go and ask for it to be unlocked. It was just completely wrong. And so we began the campaign again. We had a petition through change.org. It got to 42,000 signatures. Fantastic. We had the national media media commentators talking about it. I had young Sarah McCarthy, whose father died in Lebanon on Operation Paladin in 2008 when his uh, vehicle hit a landmine, and I had him as he, she came out and spoke about the hurt about her father not being on the wall. But in contrast, Sergeant Andrew Russell died in Afghanistan when his vehicle hit a landmine. Sergeant Russell rightfully was on the Australian War Memorial Roll of Honour. Captain Peter McCarthy was not, yet they died the same way. Right. And so, so that was time, and we really pushed hard. Uh, we had a lot of support for the campaign. I had Private Clark's mother, Jamie, uh, Jamie Clark's mother, Avril, uh, working really hard with us. I had Sarah McCarthy. They became the face of the of the, uh, of the campaign, um, and ultimately, uh, it, uh, with the change of uh, director at the Australian War Memorial in Dr. Brendan Nelson, it happened. And in August 2013, those families were taken to the Australian War Memorial, and for the first time since 1947. They, they were put on the wall and the families could see the names and touch the name. And touching is a very important part of grieving. And, uh, and, and so they were really being denied the right to grieve appropriately. Absolutely. So, Phil, um, what, what, could, you t- could, you speak to, could you speak to the mental health implications for all of these um, peacekeepers, the reservists and and the main peacekeeping body. Um, what, what is happening? Because this it sounds like the, the, a silent lost community that, that needs to be heard. Well, look, I, I want to use an example here, Kate, of, uh, of some of those that who, are, who are actually forgotten about completely, and that's the people that are on border protection in northern Australia. They're the people that jump in the sea off those Navy ships ships to, uh, to, fight, to pull survivors off the, uh, off the sinking refugee boats or to pull bodies aboard. That is, they are the hidden epidemic. We talk about Iraq, we talk about Afghanistan, and everyone understands that, but very few people understand the, the, the issues around post-traumatic stress disorder for areas like the um, border protection, for those that were caught up in wars that where it suddenly you know, atrocities have exploded in front of them. Or even those uh, in Timor in uh, 99 who were up in the east uh, training the the fledgling Timorese army um, while the rest of the Australian Defence Force were uh, um, given warlike service. They were given non-warlike service and had their medals taken off them. So all that leads to, you know, a lot of mental health issues uh, and... Uh, you know, based on experience, lack of recognition, and uh, and it, it you know post traumatic stress disorder is a part of that, and it's a significant part of it, but it's also uh, you know the, the issues that go with it, the homelessness that's on the increase, 
the suicides that are occurring, um, the family violence issues, the family separation. It, it's leading to all these other factors that I don't think anyone has really foreseen and has the ability to respond to. So it sounds like issues there of um, anger, um, social isolation, um, anxiety and depression, all compounding with PTSD. Does that sound accurate? It, it does, and you could probably put in there, uh, you know, risky behaviour. Um, you know, it's uh, it, there's a whole range of, you know, and then on top of that, of course, with those who are physically injured as well. Sure. And we have a, hot, a large number of those. I think it's about nearly 300 who have been injured in the uh, uh, in, in the Afghanistan campaign. Um, we have down here, um, and, he, and he was on 60 Minutes the other day, um, young Matthew Milhouse, who survived a, an IED blast in Baghdad, but now has got dementia, and he's not even 40 yet. He's in a, uh, in, a in an aged care home. Right. Um, so, so there's all these elements that, that combine, and there's no single thread. But it's and it and because we people leave, they 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 separate from defence. Don't necessarily join the RSL. They are somewhere out there in the communities. And Phil, we're out of time, but I would like to hear your final words about what you would like to see happen at a governmental or societal level for these veterans. Just, just, just to to wind up. Okay, to wind up, I, I believe that government is on the right track. They've still got a long way to go, but one of the key factors I would like to see is them stop being so resistant to peacekeeping recognition. One of the big factors there would be uh, helping. Uh, finish off their peacekeeping memorial in Canberra so people have a place to go, a, pe- a place of recognition for their service and uh, and to also be not so resistant when uh, when issues are raised to them to, to be a part of the solution, not so much part of the problem into the future. Sure. Look, thank you so much, Phil. Um, that's been a real education in... Um, oh, a hidden crisis in Australia of... Um, peacekeepers returning and having to struggle not only with their mental health but with basic human recognition. Thank you so much, Phil. Um, It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.